Well, good morning. Glad that you guys are here today to worship at Cape Bible Chapel to join us in the Make series. We're working on this series on discipleship. This is the third week. If you remember the first week, we talked about the mandate to make disciples. We're all supposed to be disciples who make disciples. And last week, we talked about the meaning of a disciple. And today, we're going to talk about something that I hadn't ever really spent a lot of time thinking about. Maybe you hadn't either. We're going to talk about why Jesus chose 12 disciples and then why he specifically poured into about three of them. And then next week, we're going to start looking at the characteristics. We're going to call them the makeup of a disciple. So let's dive in today looking at this model of discipleship that Jesus used. Maybe you've heard this old saying before. I think it normally comes up like at family reunions or if you have a family member on a game show and they really embarrass you or something like that. And the phrase goes like this. You can pick your friends, and you can pick your nose, but you can't pick your family. And the notion is that, you know, like them or not, embarrassed by them or not, you're kind of stuck with them. That's just the way God intended. I've also heard that phrase this way before. You can pick your friends, and you can pick your nose, but you shouldn't pick your friend's nose. But I'm thinking, come on. I mean, what if they're a really good friend? How good a friend would they have to be for you to say, yeah, I'll do that? What if their arm was broken? And it was a cast all the way to the tip. I mean, then, would you? makes you start thinking about stuff. And, and, and as weird as it is, believe it or not, I think this is going to be pretty applicable to what we're talking about today. Because one of the bottom lines of Christianity, for sure, is that relationships matter. I mean, first and foremost, we're supposed to have our relationship with God, right? If by grace, through faith, in his son Jesus, we have a relationship with God, then that's it. That's the most important relationship we're ever going to have. But if that's true of us, then, as fallen people, in this fallen world, we get the chance to live out our faith in front of people. It's this big theological term called sanctification. It's just the notion of dying to ourselves and trying to become more like Jesus every day. It really just means as long as God leaves us on the planet, we're going to have the opportunity in these bodies to work on relationships with other people. As we're being sanctified, the playing field, it be better to call it the training ground, is our relationships. So we think, in our relationships, do we model the kind of relationship we have with God? And so when you start to think about that, you naturally think about your family, your friends, the people you have relationships with. And here's the reality, I think, for all of us. We have different levels of friends. I have 1,196 Facebook friends. I looked this up. Some of them are you. If you're my Facebook friend, I'm sorry. I just want to apologize right now. I'm lousy at Facebook. If Facebook were a pet, I would have starved it to death. It would have died by now. I don't ever check on it. I don't spend any time with it. And, you know, that's where my 1,196 friends are. So, so I apologize. I'm not good at that. But the question out of that is I had to look it up to see how many I had on there. Are, are those truly my friends? You know, for sure lots of them are. I know a lot of them. But here's the deal. I guarantee this is true for me. and probably is for you too. I have some Facebook friends that I don't even know. I mean, they friended me because, like, we have some mutual friends or something like that. So I really don't even know those people. Are they really my friend? I remember hearing about a study. It was years ago when I was on Young Life staff. I saw this report, and it really resonated with me. It was a scientific study. It said the number of friends that a human being is able to have, the actual number of people you can keep up with, you can have real life-on-life experiences with and keep up with conversations and communication without being totally overloaded. You know how many of the studies said? And I thought that research was really incredible because it went on to say that you can have a core group of 12 friends, but you can't be really, really transparent with that many people. Even You can't be that intimate even with that number. That would be too much. 
it would fry out your brain. So they had a number of folks that you could actually be close friends with. These would be your besties, your true best friends. Any guess what the number they said was? Two to three. And I remember that really resonating with me and thinking about why Jesus chose 12 disciples and then why he was really close with this smaller subsection of that group. And I wish I'd remembered where I saw the research, but I didn't write the source down at the time. So I did a really scary thing this week. I ventured out on the Internet looking for it. That's a pretty vast, scary place out there, the Internet. (laughs) I didn't find the exact report that I was looking for. I did read way more sociological surveys than I ever want to read again. I read more articles on psychology today than I'll ever read again, I promise. I'm not making this up. I read one scholarly essay. It was entitled, Why Your Friends Have More Friends Than You Do. That was true research. I got lost in that one pretty early on. It was, it was over my head. And I, I guess really that's my problem with the Internet. It doesn't have a junk filter. Anybody can just put anything on there, and then you go to do some research, and, and you accept that as true because it's on the Internet. There's a bunch of goofy stuff. I was actually searching this week on, on some sites that I use and know and trust for information about Jesus picking the 12 disciples. And when I got done with that survey, just for the fun of it, I typed it in on a Google search. Hey, why did Jesus pick the 12 disciples? And here's what I found. I found a guy's blog. He was a really deep thinker. He proposed four suggestions for why Jesus chose 12 disciples. And I actually agreed with the first one, so I kept reading. But then by the time I got to the second one, it was clear this guy had left the reservation. Not everything was firing right for this guy. His second and third suggestions defied normal brain activity. But, But then he got to the fourth one, and believe it or not, it made sense to me in a real roundabout kind of way. This was his fourth suggestion. He suggested the reason Jesus chose 12 disciples was because seven is the perfect number. And there are three members in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so if you multiply seven times three, you get 21. But that's just too many friends to be really close with. So Jesus transposed the number, and he got 12. That's why there's 12 disciples. Now, I can't follow the logic, but, but the weird thing is I agree with the conclusion of that suggestion. I don't know that we can have 21 true friends. That's what all these secular studies, these sociological, these psychological studies told me. Now, I didn't find the one that said it had to be 12, but every one that I read said that the number of people we can be really close with, beyond acquaintances, is like between 10 and 15. And the number of really intimate friends we're wired to be able to keep up with is between 2 and 3. So while we're created by God for relationships, clearly we're not supposed to be alone, it also seems like we're kind of fearfully and wonderfully made, we're uniquely made, where we can't process too many relationships. We can have a bunch of acquaintances, but we can't have true relationships with that many folks. And I just find that really fascinating as we begin to look at how Jesus did it, at Jesus' model of discipleship. So that's a little backdrop to what we're going to look at in the Bible today. Because the fact is, as Jesus began his public ministry, he did have a bunch of friends. He did have multitudes of people that followed him around. And they were listening to him teach, and they were being amazed because he was doing these signs and these miracles. But out of that group, he selected 12 to be his disciples. There were only 12 that he was going to send out to accomplish God's plan and purpose. And of those 12, it's real easy to see in Scripture, there were three that got to be really, really close with him, closer than the other disciples. So turn with me in your Bibles, or open your Bible app, however you get there, to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to look in Luke chapter 6 and verse 12, and this begins one of the sections in Scripture on Jesus choosing the 12. There are accounts of this in all the Synoptic Gospels. Now it's helpful, I think, as we look at the Gospels, 
to remember they were really written as eyewitness accounts or records of somebody's eyewitness account. But if you look at them, they're really solid theologically. But here's the thing they're not as interested in. They're not interested in being a chronology of how and when the events occurred. So I think the majority of things we read about in the Gospels actually take place over like a couple-week period. But we're actually viewing a period of three years in Jesus' life and 33 years that he walked on the earth. But we don't see those things as like a timeline of events. I've been guilty of this before. Sometimes you read the Gospels and you think Jesus was walking along and he said, okay, today I'm going to quit being a carpenter and I'm going to pick these 12 guys and I'm going to jump out and start doing ministry. But I don't think it happened just like that. When Jesus began his public ministry, he did it by teaching to these multitudes of people. He'd travel around and teach and he was teaching with authority and he was performing miracles and he was healing diseases. So it's really not a big surprise that people started following him around. However, for a lot of these people, I think it was like being a big fan of a sports team or having a, a rock band that you like to follow. You know, if, they, if they've got a home game, if there's a gig that's near you, then you gear up and you go. You drag out the face paint in your jersey and you go because you're a big fan. But, but here's the deal. You don't follow them from city to city. You don't live with the team. I mean, you probably have a job and a life, you know, so you can make money so you can go to the games. Well, I think it was probably that way with Jesus. I think folks come to hear him teach, and then they went home. I mean, they might stay if they needed to be healed or something like that, but eventually Jesus would stop teaching, and so the crowds would disperse. Now, commentators and scholars that I really trust don't agree on the amount of time that Jesus spent doing this kind of teaching to the multitudes. There are some that say it was a period of only a few months, like maybe up to six months. There are others in this group, John MacArthur's in this group, say it was maybe up to 18 months. Jesus spent like a year and a half of his time doing this. Now today, I, I don't know that it's really critical to understand just how long that time period was. What I think really is important is to understand what happened that made Jesus change. First, he was just teaching the multitudes, and then he stops and intentionally selects 12 guys and starts pouring into them. What was the thing that precipitated that change? If we turn to the Bible, you look at Luke 6, 12. That's where Jesus is preparing to select his 12 disciples this is what it says. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray. Because in the morning, he was going to select the disciples. He's going to appoint them. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. It says, at that time. Well, what time is that? We'll look back at the verse before, Luke 6, 11. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Now, who is the they here? It's the scribes and the Pharisees. And the text indicates they were filled with rage. They were upset. So the answer of what they might do to Jesus was not throw him a party. How upset were they? Here's what the other synoptic gospels say. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 14, we'll have the verses on the screen so you don't have to try and keep up. Matthew 12, 14, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, more than rage, as to how they might destroy him. Here's how Mark records it in Mark 3, verses 6 and 7. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. So Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude, these are the crowds, from Galilee followed and also from Judea. So Jesus has these folks so upset that the Pharisees are conspiring with folks they don't even get along with. They like only slightly more than they like Jesus. You know, they want to crush him. But still Jesus has some fans. He has this great multitude of people that follow him around. And it's from this group that he's going to select the 12 disciples. 
Well, now you've got to ask, what did Jesus do to make these folks so angry that they wanted to kill him? Well, before Jesus chose the 12, he'd been doing this public ministry. He'd been walking around teaching. And one of the first things he did, if you remember this in John 2, was he cleared the temple. He cleansed the temple. If you remember in that account, he drives the money changers out. And what he's really doing there is he's exposing the hypocrisy of the current religious system. He's exposing the corruption that was present in the Judaism of his day. So that's what Jesus is teaching everywhere he goes. There's going to be a new kingdom. And as he's teaching it, he's basically saying, hey, this this present religious system, it's being led by self-righteous legalists. So you know, this wasn't a popular message with everybody, but that's what sets the stage for Jesus choosing the disciples. So these religious leaders that Jesus is denouncing, they're growing in their hatred for him. Because everywhere he goes, that's what he's doing. He's speaking to the multitudes, and he's teaching about the true kingdom of God, but he's also exposing them as hypocrites and law keepers. They're not true followers of God. So that's the backstory behind Luke 6, 12, behind appointing these disciples to follow him. It's because Jesus is saying, I know what's coming. I know where I'm going. He he knows he's going to be crucified. And at this time, it says in there, facing this serious opposition, this fierce opposition from these religious leaders, that's when he says, okay, now is the time for me to get my guys ready. It's when the opposition was so fierce and he needed to pick some friends that were going to walk with him. They were going to be with him and they were going to carry on the work of God's plan after Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. These 12 guys are going to be trained and equipped and then tasked with this work of proclaiming the gospel to the world by making disciples that would then make disciples. These are going to be the guys who established the church after Pentecost. So when Jesus chooses them, we see an actual shift in the focus of his ministry. He shifts from these big group teachings to pouring into these 12 guys. Now, yes, he still addresses the masses, but but from that time when he appoints the disciples, his ministry focus changes. So as we start to focus on these 12 disciples, then the question comes up, okay, why 12? Is it 21 backwards? I don't think so. You know, what's the significance to that number? And then if we ask that, I think there's another follow-up question. Why those 12 guys? Because honestly, in Scripture, they look like a pretty ragtag bunch of guys. Well, 12 is symbolically important. It's an important number for the disciples because of the 12 Old Testament tribes of Israel. If you look in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28, in the context of that passage, Jesus is saying he's going to reward the disciples for their obedience and following him. And here's part of the reward. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me, speaking to the disciples, in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones. You'll judge the twelve tribes of Israel. Luke chapter 22 and verse 30 says the same thing. It had to be twelve to fulfill this prophecy that we see in the first chapter of Isaiah where God indicates, it's a neat chapter, that he's going to spank Christians. He disciplines Christ's followers. But then he redeems us and he restores us. He says this in verse 26 of Isaiah 1, Then I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. After that, you'll be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. So all that to say the number 12 wasn't arbitrary for God. It wasn't arbitrary for Jesus as he chose 12 disciples who would end up being his apostles. And here's the deal. I'd make the case, I don't know that I'm 100% sure on this, I'd make the case Jesus knew ahead of time who they were going to be. In Luke 6, 12, before he appointed these guys, it said he prayed all night. Well, I don't think he prayed all night saying, okay, God, who do you think? 
There's old Bar Shalimar over there. He's got like 2,000 Facebook friends. He'd be good, wouldn't he? No, not him. Now, I don't think it went like that. Jesus is God, so in some sense, I believe he knew. But there's another indication in the passage. This passage is the only instance in the New Testament of somebody spending the whole night in prayer. And the Greek word that translates that expression, the, the big expression we see in English, the whole night in prayer, is one Greek word. It's dianokturio. And it, it means a lot more than just praying. It's work. It's toiling. It's grinding. And although we read it again in English as a prayer to God, in the Greek it really can indicate a prayer of God. So I don't think Jesus was just praying about who to choose. I think all night long he was fervently praying with his Father for these guys that had already been chosen because they were going to be the ones who were going to carry on the plan after Jesus leaves from the earth. That might just be me. So why 12? For sure because of the symbolic nature. What the disciples represent is a new Israel. They're inaugurating a new kingdom. In essence, Jesus is just wiping the slate of the current and the past religious leaders that had become heretical and legalistic, and they'd messed up Judaism, and he's starting over. And then I think 12 also as an example of how many close friends we can probably have. But now why these 12 guys, that's a whole nother shooting match. Because <laughs> every time we read about them, every time we hear about the disciples in the Gospels, it's not good. It's not real favorable where we go, oh, yeah, I see why he chose those guys. You know? Seriously, what we say is, these guys? <laughs> the fishermen? The tax collector? That's the guy, the traitor? Seriously, Jesus, these are the guys you wanted? When Jesus picked the 12, he took no rabbis. Rabbis would have been highly regarded back in the day. He took no Pharisees. He took no Sadducees, no scribes, no priests. He didn't take any of the brilliant philosophers, the famous debaters. Jesus took nobody with an established religious background, and I think that was on purpose. I think it was really intentional. We see this in John chapter 1 and verse 11. He came to his own. Jesus came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Now, for sure, this is broad, and this is about salvation being available both to the Jew and to the Gentile. But I think it also indicates the folks who said they were following God, the religious leaders of that time, they didn't accept him either. As a matter of fact, they wanted to kill him. Jesus didn't choose any of them to become disciples. Instead, he chose this group of uneducated, untrained men. And I think it's primarily for this reason, at least it is for me, they remind us of us. They're like us. They're, they're sinners who were saved by God's grace. And then they were sanctified. And it was a process for them, just like it's a process for us. And then Jesus equips them and trains them to carry out God's plan, just like us. They became disciples who make disciples. That's our plan now. Now, these guys weren't shining examples. They, they weren't the best of the best, like we spoke about the perception of rabbis last week. If you look in the Gospels, they had some real serious issues. In the New Testament, the disciples are referred to as being dull, stupid, and blind. And these are Jesus' friends. They seemed to lack any real spiritual understanding. They had major humility issues. We often see them arguing about which one among them was the greatest. At times, their faith was weak. They had real serious character flaws. But here's one exceptional thing about them. And if we allow God to work in our lives, it would be one exceptional thing about us. They were teachable. They were trainable. They were lumps of clay that were fashioned by God, who was the potter. And we'll explore so much more of that in the coming weeks because we'll look at some of these folks individually. 
to see how God changed them and transformed them to allow them to make disciples. But I think God's directing of Jesus to choose these men testifies that God can, and he does, use unworthy and unqualified people to accomplish incredible things for his glory. I think the act of Jesus choosing these guys set the pattern for the early church, and it sets the pattern that God still uses today. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 29. For consider your calling, brethren, speaking to all Christ followers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen them, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. See, Jesus chose the people he chose, these 12 guys, to be his disciples so that God would get the glory, not these guys. There was no character flaw these 12 men had that Jesus couldn't handle. So do we still, pardon me, look at the 12 and say, why them? You know, why these guys with no education, no special training, no speaking skills, no spiritual understanding, no power, weak faith, humility issues, why them? They're us. <laughs> Scripture, as always, has the answer for this. They're the Apostle Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9, but they apply to all of us. And he has said to me, God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. See, God's strength, his power shows best when there's no way we can claim the credit ourselves. Now, Paul said that, and sometimes he was prone to boast a bit. So I'm going to boast a little bit on the disciples. I want to give them credit in one area because for sure they were the ones who were chosen by God. So they must have had something that distinguished them from that larger group of disciples that followed Jesus around. And I think they did have one character quality present that the others didn't, and it's this. They were committed. Before Jesus called the 12, there was that big group of disciples. There was a multitude following Jesus. We'd said earlier, probably not as a full-time gig, they had lives outside of being disciples. They'd show up for that big group teaching, but they hadn't abandoned everything to follow Jesus. But from that group, he picked these 12 and they did leave everything to follow him. They were all in. They were committed. Now, yes, they were human, and they messed up along the way. After the Last Supper, right before Jesus and the disciples go to the Garden of Gethsemane, the disciples' leader, Peter, says this in Matthew 26, starting at verse 30, 33. Peter said to Jesus, even though all may fall away because of you, I'll never fall away. And Jesus calls him out on it. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, this very night, before a rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter wasn't having any of it. He said to him, even I have to die with you, I'll not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. And it's a sad account because we know how that turned out. So the disciples, they show their humanness. They show their fallenness. But even with this glaring act, I think they showed commitment that others in that larger group of disciples didn't have. Because they answered a call that was costly economically said earlier they left their jobs they answered a call that asked them to elevate their relationship with jesus above their relationships with their families that was a tough call back in that day it was a very patriarchal society turn with me real quick to the gospel of matthew chapter 8 look in matthew chapter 8 and we're going to look at verses 18 to 23 
And I think the thing to think about before we read these verses is the 12, they did. They answered Jesus' call immediately. They dropped everything to follow him. Yes, they had issues, but they were committed. Here's verse 18 in Matthew 8. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, this is the folks who come to hear him teach, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Well, then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. That sounds pretty noble, doesn't it? Why isn't this guy one of the 12? Well, he didn't go about it the right way. We said last week, Jesus wasn't the normal rabbi. You didn't approach him and ask to follow him. With the 12, he approached them, so he got to choose. So Jesus dismisses the scribe. Now, there's another guy there. And again, he's from one of Jesus' you know, big group of followers there. He sounds like he wants to follow Jesus. But he's got some things he needs to take care of first. Here's what he says in verse 21. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Now, that's exceptionally loyal. I mean, that's noble sounding, isn't it? That's showing obedience to that commandment to honor father and mother. That's being a good son, right? What does Jesus say in verses 22 to 23? Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. See, Jesus is looking for commitment. This guy was with the group. He was already one of Jesus' disciples. But when the command to truly, literally get in the boat and follow him came, this guy had an excuse. Now, we don't know if it was a good excuse. I mean, maybe his dad was elderly and he hadn't actually passed away and this guy is looking for a way out. That could be. We really don't know that. But what if the guy's dad had just died? What if, what if literally the amount of time it would take before he could follow Jesus was just a couple days to have the funeral? Couldn't this guy still follow? Nope. Jesus was looking for the kind of commitment we see from the 12 that he appointed. What did those guys do differently? Well, we only know from the ones we actually see in Scripture, but we make a good case for all 12 of them. They were the ones who immediately dropped everything to follow Jesus. Jesus was looking from this guy for the kind of commitment John and James made in Matthew 4, where they left their dad, poor Zebedee, in the boat with the servants. He was looking for the kind of commitment that was radical that Matthew made when he left the tax collector's booth. Jesus went to Matthew and said, follow me, and Matthew didn't say, hey, I got a lunch break in about an hour. Can you wait? Just No. He dropped his stuff and he followed him. Those guys made a commitment. I believe that's the thing that separated this group of guys. And they had no deeper commitment in their lives. They set aside everything else. They put away family loyalty. They left their occupations and they followed. So we look in the Bible and it becomes pretty clear, I think, why Jesus chose these 12 guys, why he trained them and equipped them. And it's obvious that while they didn't volunteer for the position, they were chosen They were committed to Jesus. Well, that's the part that's applicable for us. Because even though we're not part of that original group of disciples, we're like them. And that if we've professed faith in Christ, then we're called into service as well. We don't volunteer for it. We're drafted into it. But here's the deal. We're part of the method now. We're part of the plan to make disciples who make disciples. And so clearly, looking at the people that Jesus chose, there's nobody in here today who can say, well, there's no way God can use me. I mean, we don't need to have amazing talents. We don't have to have special skills. We don't need to be rich or famous. None of these guys were. Now, if we have some of those things, fantastic. If you do have skills or talents or resources or whatever, that's great. Allow God to use those talents and treasures. He gave them to you. But here's the deal. I mean, no pressure here, but there's no plan B. We're it. Are we making disciples? 
And before we wrap up today, I want to spend just a few minutes looking at something that honestly I'd never considered before. And that concerns why a small subset of the 12 got to have an even deeper relationship with Jesus. I went to a pretty good seminary. We never talked about this once. <laughs> I've had some really neat conversations with some pretty good theologians. I, I just, I passed on this for some reason. I'd never bothered to ask why Jesus would have chosen a smaller group of disciples that he allowed to have favor that wasn't available to all of them. Even when I was thinking about that study that I mentioned earlier about how many truly close friends we can have, I never thought to go beyond that and study why Jesus devoted special consideration to three of the disciples, really two in particular. And so I studied it this week, and I still don't know that I can 100% answer why. Here's why he did it. But I think I'm on to something here, and it was confirmed to me by a tiny little theologian in my house on Friday morning. We had our family devotional Friday morning. We'd do that before we go to school. And then I asked the kids to pray for me. I said, hey, I'm teaching on something this weekend, and I really don't know that I know what I'm talking about. I said, have you guys ever stopped to think about why Jesus devoted special attention to three of the disciples? Why did he hang out with those three guys more? And it got really quiet in my kitchen. And then my seven-year-old boy, Trey, said this. He goes, maybe they loved him more. I thought, wow, (laughs) I think Trace might be on to something. Because we get that in our own lives, don't we? You have people that you love, and then you have people that you love, (laughs) and you really love. I can honestly say that I love the folks here in this church. God's given me a real heart for you. But do I love you like I love my wife? Like I love my kids? I coach Little League Baseball. I love little dudes on my team. But do I love them like I love Trace, who's also on my team? No, because he's my boy. (laughs) So we have these different levels of friendship. Now, the one area where I think this gets fuzzy is with parents and their children. Do we love one child more than another? I hope not. But here's the reality. We may love them differently because they're wired differently. Since I'm telling on my kids, I'll shame them. They're not here. They'll be here later. I have a 13-year-old boy, Carson. He's as tall as me. He's a big bear of a boy, big old teddy bear. Comes tell me goodnight. He'll still kiss me on the lips. I have a 14-year-old boy, Gavin. He's way too cool for that. I mean, he'll hug me goodnight, but there's no part of kissing. Carson will hug me in public. He'd care less. <laughs> it's just a great thing. Do I doubt that one loves me more or less than the other? No. Do I think they think that I love one of them more? No. They're just wired differently. That's okay. I heard this quote from a mother once who had 10 children. Someone asked her which one she loved the most. And she said, the one who needs my love the most at that time. I think that's a good answer. Did Jesus love the 12 disciples differently? He certainly loved them all. Make that case in Scripture easily. But yes, I think he did love them differently. I think in study, as a matter of fact, I'd make a case that the order we see those lists of the disciples in Scripture may be somewhat of a descending order of how close they were to him. I say that mostly because Peter is always listed first and Judas Iscariot is always last. And you can disagree with me on this one because I can't prove it. But the reality in Scripture is on three different occasions, Peter, James, and John got to be part of some unique time with Jesus that the other disciples didn't get to. There's one other time in Mark 13 called the Olivet Discourse. Andrew joins in with that group. But he didn't get to tag along the other times. So you wonder how Andrew felt about that. This is a fascinating subject to me. So in three different settings, we see Jesus with this group that some theologians refer to as the inner circle. These guys were tight with Jesus. In all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see this recorded. 
in Matthew 9, also in Mark 5, and in Luke 8, Peter, James, and John get to go into the room with Jesus when he's going to resurrect the daughter of the synagogue official, Jairus. In Matthew 17, in Mark 9, and Luke 9, you see that inner circle with Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration. At that event where he went and proved, hey, I am who I have say that I am. I really am who I say that I am. Those guys were there with him. They were the witnesses. And finally, in Matthew 26 and in Mark 14, and the account in Luke doesn't actually include the inner circle, but these same three guys get to go along further with Jesus as he goes to pray with his father about his upcoming crucifixion. Jesus goes into the garden and he prays, wow, God, if if there's another way to reconcile people to you, it'd be a good time to know because I'm getting ready to go to the cross. And these guys get to go with him. They go further into the garden. Why did these guys get to be part of that and the others don't? Truly, I don't know. But for some reason, he didn't feel free to let the other guys in on that stuff. He didn't show them the depth of emotion that he showed to that inner circle. For whatever reason, those were the guys he felt he could be real with, could be transparent with. Why is that? Well, the only thing that really clearly jumps out at me is what Trey said. Somehow Jesus loved them differently. Somehow they loved him more. The inner circle was close to him. In the book of John, five different times, the author John goes third person on us, and he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Five times. Actually, turn with me in the Gospel of John to John chapter 21, verse 15. This is after Peter famously denies knowing Jesus, which is a sad account since he was the one who said, I'll never depart from you, Lord. I'll never leave. The resurrected Jesus takes this special care to reinstate Peter. And so Peter had denied him three times. He asked him three times if Peter loves him. But look at this. This is the first time in verse 15. They'd finished breakfast, the disciples and the resurrected Jesus. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. More than these. Who is Jesus referring to? It's the other disciples. Peter apparently loves Jesus more than they do. Peter, James, and John make up this inner circle of Jesus' close, close friends. Now, you don't hear much about James at all in this inner circle. I read a commentary that said the reason he gets to be part of that inner circle is because Jesus knew that he would be the first to be martyred. I'm thinking that's speculation, but I don't know. But for sure we see from God's word, John was the disciple that Jesus loved. Peter was the disciple that loved Jesus the most. I'm thinking that's why they got to be in the inner circle. This happens in your life, doesn't it? We love deeply those who love us the most. My wife can encourage me like none of you can because I'm close to her. We're one flesh. By the same token, if if my wife rebukes me, that means more to me than any other rebuke I might get because we're close. That being said, Jesus rebuked these guys in the inner circle, unlike all the other rebukes he offers in Scripture. And in the Bible, he does his fair share of rebuking. (laughs) He rebukes all the disciples as a group. He rebukes the elements. He tells the wind and water to settle down. He rebukes the Pharisees. You know, so he, he rebukes demons. He drives demons out. But this inner circle, because of their relationship with him, they get their own special rebukes from God because he expected more out of them. In Mark chapter 8, Peter hits a really high note and a really low note within a few verses. He makes this great theological, this accurate confession of who Christ is. But then when Jesus starts outlining the mission, 
and explaining that he's going to need to die in order to allow us to have a relationship with God, Peter gives him a little back talk. Here's what he says in verses 32, 33. As he was stating the matter plainly, hey, I'm going to have to die, Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. And I love that because you got to, this stuff happened. This is real stuff. Can you imagine Peter going, Jesus, come here. No, you don't have to die. What does Jesus say to him? Turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests but man's. In case it isn't clear, calling somebody Satan, that's a pretty harsh rebuke. <laughs> but I think Jesus is saying, hey, Peter, you remind me of the stuff the devil himself was talking about in Matthew chapter 4, the scene of Christ's temptation. That was where Satan wanted to try to let Christ off the hook for the suffering and death he'd have to embrace. Jesus loved Peter. Peter was the clear leader of the disciples. Here he needed a stern rebuke. If Jesus and Peter had just been buddies, if Peter had been one of the guys in the group that he hadn't been chosen, do you think he would have gotten that stern rebuke? Do you think, think Jesus would have called him Satan? No, but they were close. So they needed that rebuke. James and John got their own rebuke as well. It was in Luke chapter 9, verses 54 to 55. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That's a common question, right? But he turned and he rebuked them. He said, you do not know what kind of spirit you're of. Jesus had given the disciples special power and authority to heal diseases and drive out demons and preach the gospel. And this is what James and John want to do. They want to call out fireballs and destroy people. Why did they want to do this? Who's the people they were going to destroy? It was Samaritans who were being true to their culture at the time. They didn't associate with Jews. Jews didn't associate with them. James and John were willing to wipe them off the face of the planet. So they got rebuked. Jesus expected more from them because they were close to him. Now, here's my thought, and I may be way, ba- way off base here, but with the amount of study I've done to this point in time, this is where I'm going to land. Jesus came into this world fully God and yet fully man. So he had needs just like we do. We see this in the Bible. He got tired. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He was our example in all ways. Jesus got baptized. Jesus prayed to the Father who dwelt inside him. He's modeling these things for us. So is it too weird to think that he was modeling social needs for us as well? Is it too weird to think that he had social needs? He had levels of friendship just like we do. Since relationships are the most important thing for us, first with God and then with others, to model the one we have with God, could it be that Jesus was modeling proper relationships for us as well? He had these multitudes following him around, but those were just acquaintances. He chose 12 good friends to be with him. And then he chose a few really, really good friends to confide in. And if that's the case, then Jesus is modeling something, again, that we know to be true from our own relationships. Because we commit the most to those who love us the most. We reveal our deepest, darkest secrets to those who know us and love us the most. Well, Jesus committed his greatest knowledge to this inner circle. He let these guys see him transfigured. And then he told them not to tell the others because it might freak them out. He let these guys in on the fact that he was in anguish in the garden. The others didn't get to see that. He committed his greatest knowledge to these who loved him the most. John chapter 13 and verse 1 shows us Jesus' feelings for all his disciples. It says, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come when he departed out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, 
He loved them to the end. So Jesus loved these guys. They had issues, but he loved them all. But it appears that he loved a couple of them differently, maybe because of the way they loved him. When Jesus reinstated Peter, he asked him those three times, do you love me? The final time, Peter replied this way in John 21 and verse 17. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said this to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And I think that's the deal. Jesus does know all things. So he knows if we're choosing to love other things more than we love him. I think that's a question he still asks us today. Do we love him more than the other stuff in our lives? It's a serious question. If we desire to be close to Jesus, we admit he knows all things. Do we have our priorities right? Are we putting God first in our lives? Or is there other stuff that we're putting in the way? I'm going to close our service today by taking communion. If you're new with us here, the communion elements are on the tables around you, and the guys are going to come and play some music, and you'll have some response time to do the things that Scripture says we're supposed to do. We're supposed to examine our hearts. We're supposed to confess our sins. And so we spend time today taking the bread and the cup. I hope that's the thing that's resonating with us. Do we love Jesus more than anything else? Are we committed to following Jesus closely? And I hope we'll be challenged by this today throughout the rest of this discipleship series to recognize the practicality of what Jesus did. He called 12 disciples from the multitudes that were following him. He poured into those guys. They were disciples who were supposed to make disciples. He sent them out. He picked guys who for sure God's power would be perfected in their weakness. He lived his life with them. He equipped them. He sent them out. And as he did it, he drew a couple of them really close because of their love for him. And now, today, because they were disciples who made disciples, we're the plan of discipleship. And there is no plan B, because that's the model Jesus chose. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for the way you're at work. And thank you for the incredible wisdom, the intentionality of, of the plan of discipleship. As you had your son walk and teach and draw people to himself, and from that group, you selected the 12 who you were going to appoint and equip to be disciple makers. And God, because of their work, because of their obedience to the task, because of the way that you enabled them, here we are today. And we have that same charge. Are we disciple makers? God, as we go out, as we take communion today, can we say that we're committed to you? And we say that we love you more than the other stuff in our lives. That burden our hearts to draw close to you. I'm jealous of those guys who got to be in the inner circle. I say sometimes I want to be that close to you, but then do I, I live my life that way? Am I really committed to you? God, thank you for the chance to come together and open your word and worship together. We love you. We give this day in our lives to you. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen.